0: Good morning, Creekside. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, man, thank you guys for that. That song um, is new to me and um, just the powerful words to be able to say together. If you're visiting with us, welcome. We're so glad to have you here um, as part of our family this morning and um, just to get to worship and open up uh, our Bibles together to one of the strangest books in the entire Bible. And I I say that with no judgment. I love Ecclesiastes, but it is bizarre, okay? So um, what we've we've been doing is we've been walking through uh, this book of Ecclesiastes, and week by week, he's been uh, leading us kind of through this journey on how life is just so problematic, and it's so impossible to figure out. And, um, And so he's just, week by week, he's taking us on these quests, okay? So we've seen like a quest for like, Maybe wisdom will will give meaning to my life and finding, nope, wisdom ultimately lets you down. Maybe all my riches and all my pleasure and everything else that I can pursue is going to give meaning to my life. So he's had six quests that we've gone on to this point. Um, There's been two interludes within those six quests. So he, he searches for these things, find that it's just like chasing after the wind. It will not satisfy. And um, the two interludes have been about the first one in chapter three about time and how, um, you know, everything like there's a time for mourning and a time for dancing and and just going back and forth and how basically at the end of it all, like we have to trust God in that. Uh, Trust God with our time because God makes everything beautiful in its time. Then he did a little more questing, and then we had another interlude about fearing God and, um, and how, like, when we come to the house of God, let's let our words be few and stand before him. So this has been his rhythm. Uh, quests and then a little interlude that kind of points us in the right direction of where God's at. Um, then we had a, another quest, the last quest in the book. In, in uh, last week from chapter six, um, where it was it was just like he's just one last time. Let me pursue this. Let me try to find meaning in it. And now we enter the weirdest section of all in, in Ecclesiastes. Okay, so here now is what I'm calling uh, deconstructed proverbs. Because you read it, you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, and you get into the section that's like Proverbs, and you're like, this is familiar territory, I've read the book of Proverbs, it has a lot of wise, nice sayings that affirms our religious sensibilities, things like there's life to be found in the path of righteousness and things like this. But as the preacher goes through, he adds a twist. And he's basically, it's like he's a deconstructing person. He's got his religious life that's that's been here, but he's starting to ask questions and acknowledge his doubts and to just make observations how life really feels to him, and in that deconstruction now, he's offering us Proverbs. So what we find is they're not necessarily uh, untrue. Uh, they're they're very true of our human experience, but he's not really giving us the same feel that we get in the book of Proverbs. So it's kind of like that person that that's like grew up in the church, but has kind of seen too much in life around them to be as optimistic and as glib with their spiritual truths as they used to be. Um, kind of that person that like is suspicious of their religious upbringing, perhaps, um, but is still kind of like haunted by Christ in a sense, like can't quite move past him, can't quite discount him in all these things. It's um, uh, this musician that I love, David Bazan, he had a, a semi-Christian band called of the Lion, and he had this album where he's just putting his um, heart out there where he's just saying like, I can't see the faith like I used to. I'm not so sure that God's good like I used to think that he was. And he ends the whole thing with this line where he says, uh, it's like the crew have killed the captain, but they still can hear his voice. And I feel like that's a lot of where uh, these deconstructed Proverbs are coming from. Someone that's kind of just willing to to consider what life would be like without God, but they can't ever quite move past that. So there's this tension that we're going to fill in the middle of this. And so I would say for this section, as we get into these deconstructed Proverbs, we kind of try to chunk them together um, around a loose theme, although they're tricky to categorize. Um, It's like this morning we're being led by a um, kind of an exvangelical evangelical Christian teen with like um, black nail polish. And, you know, like it's a little more gothic, like tough. And I, um, so I'm going to share this with you. This, this, this guy that I follow on social media, that's literally all I can tell you about him. That's all I know about him. I follow him on social media. He posted this. This is Pride and Prejudice. Um, I, I grew up on the old cast of Pride and Prejudice, so I'm not so sure with this. But he characterizes it like this. Here is Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, And then there's Ecclesiastes, you know, the dark one, just like leading us through from a totally different angle. But um, don't worry, we're still in great hands, okay? So here's where he starts this journey. Um, The the, the way I'm categorizing this section of these deconstructed proverbs, excuse me, is that um, this is all about the dangers of optimism. And I just want to tell you from the start, this is g- going to be the hardest sermon I've ever preached because I am the most optimistic person that you know. I, I don't know who you know, but I guarantee you, I am more optimistic than anybody that you know. And so this is tough for me, but he's, he is deconstructing the, the dangers of optimism, and, and he's going to take lessons from a bunch of different sources. So the first lesson is from death itself, okay? So we're going to start verses 1 through 6 here, and he says it like this. This is, this is in Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. We'll keep going into verse 4 here. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Okay, so tough words, right? So he, he, he kind of, it's like he's asking us to picture this. You walked in this morning into the lobby, okay? And you walk in and just picture in, in here, there's a funeral going on, okay? And that, that happens. I can picture it. It happens in here all the time. There's a funeral in here, and then if you were to walk instead into the event room or into the backyard out back, there's a a wedding reception, okay? So there's celebrating, drinking, having fun in here. We're just all sad and together, and you choose, okay, which way am I going? And I feel like most of us would choose, let's go to the wedding reception, but the preacher is saying, actually, nope, walk into the funeral because there you're going to find all this wisdom and this perspective on life that you actually need. Now, I get that that's a super buzzkill, but he's saying it's important. You've got to do this. You've got to consider these things. He talks about how, like, the, the good name, the precious ointment. He talks about the, the day of death rather than the day of birth. Like, it's better to have these things. And he's saying it like this. I think um, if you picture it like this, my, um, one of my favorite commentators on Ecclesiastes is David Gibson. He says, birth, the day of birth is all about potential, right? Baby's born nothing but potential, but, but death is all about fulfillment. You're at the end of the thing instead of the beginning of it. So picture a baby being born, and all you know about that kid is like the name that you're giving it, right? And that name is like this optimistic prophecy over the child. My, our first daughter, we named her Abigail. It means my father's joy, which like, man, that's true. You know, that's been awesome. I feel like that wasn't that hard to get her to be that, but she is that definitely. My younger daughter is Claire, which means clear and bright, and man, that fits her really well. So we did good on that prophetic naming side. I'm pointing, oh, there's Laura. Yeah, uh, so we 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 crushed it with that. But um, but you—that's all you know, right? You're, you 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 like introduced to this human that like is gonna have this major impact on your life, but you know nothing. So it's all about the potential, right? But day of death. Picture a eulogy, and and you're here, and there's someone that we've known, and that we've lived with, and that we've prayed with, and prayed for, and been prayed for uh, by, and and, and it's all about, like, what did God actually do? And you get to relive that, and recount it, and he says, that's better, that's better. The beginning of life is just this blind optimism of, like, everything's going to be great, and, and we'll see what happens, and this is wonderful, but he's saying, no, take care, take that optimism out of the picture. Better to be at the end, because then you know how it went, and you look back on the whole thing. He talks in, uh, uh, what is it, verse 6 here? Uh, verses 5 and 6, like, uh, better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of the fools. And, and the, the song of the fools is like their, their laughter is like thorns crackling under a pot, you know? Um, and so, you know, you don't want to be in that place where you're just sitting there with, uh, with people that are just laughing and joking and everything's goofy and whatever. Like, no, no, no. Better, better to hear, like, wise people telling you the hard things in life. I, I was at this... Um, this gathering, this gospel community gathering yesterday with a bunch of people from, from several different gospel communities. And um, I had a conversation with Matt Pates, who if you know him, Matt Pates is a, a, a lovely man in our church family. And um, he was dressed in an uh, inflatable unicorn uh, costume. So you're having co- conversations with him, and it's just like, this the epitome of like the laughter of fools. is like Matt Pates just there in a unicorn costume talking to you. And he's saying, better... Matt, Matt, if you guys are stressed for Matt, he appreciates that more than anyone in the world. So, um, it is better than being goofy and silly and whatever. He's saying, take it seriously. Life actually matters, and he, say, he says it like this. Um, I think it's in, is it in verse three? Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. Some of these are kind of hard to substantiate, right? You're like, how is like this sadness going to make my heart glad? But I, what comes to my mind is um, there, there was a, a man in, in our church that was, um, his name's Adam Falls, and um, amazing guy, like I, I loved him so much. He was, he was dying of cancer um, several years ago. And um, I got to just go. One of my favorite things as a pastor is I get to go and sit with people in their hardest moments. And it's hard and it's heavy. But it is so full of life. And so to sit with this man, I I would come home and I would um, come home with Lord, and I would just cry because, I mean, he had daughters my daughter's age. Like it was just so hard to process where his life was headed. But it's such a gift and a joy to be in that place, to be able to ask questions that other people are afraid to ask, to be able to broach topics that, you know, we spend our lives trying to avoid these heavy things. And you get into talking, there's this depth and this life in it. And I I think most of you guys know what I'm talking about. Some of the hard things that you'd kind of pass if you could, but the lessons that we learn and the depth in our souls that's opened through these things. I, I think the whole idea is the preacher is walking us through this whole thing, and he's saying, like, yeah, joy's a good thing. Joy, joy's everywhere in the Bible. It's commended to us. Um, but I think he's speaking against the shallowness that we have when everything's just silly and goofy. And, no, let's go deeper. Let's get more serious about these things in life because they matter." So, so calling us to like learn lessons from death, to like live our lives backwards to for, forwards. And another Creekside person that I got to um, talk to as he was getting close to uh, the end, he was battling with cancer and the doctors gave him a couple months. I got to spend a bunch of time with him. Rick Osorio, many of you knew him, and and many of you didn't. Um, But I get to sit and talk with him, and what he would do, this was like lockdown. So like he was just isolated, and he would watch the news, and then I'd get to come and just hang out with him. It was the best, but he just watched the news, and you remember, 2020, we had this election cycle coming up. And so he'd be watching this stuff, and I'd come sit down, and he'd be like, you know, how you doing, Rick? I'm just really stressed, man, this election coming up, what are we going to do if Biden wins, you know? That was his thing, and I just said, Rick, like, that's everybody else's problem. <laughs> like, you, you have, uh, uh, like, more important things to be thinking about than what happens with a stupid election, right? Like, how, how meaningless is that in light of this reality you're about to experience with the Lord? We had the best talks. I loved Rick so much, and we had the best talks of just opening up, and so if we could take that perspective that you have at the end and carry it back further into life. Like, man, are we, are we really stressed out about elections? Are, are we really stressed out about like um, working too many hours? Like, are we really, like, what are the things that are bothering us so much in life? And could we let those things go and say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a deeper person, not a shallower person. I'm not going to be so easily upset. I'm going to live my life with more um, patience and everything. You kind of, you kind of get the sense the preacher is He's not just um, deconstructing in like a, a trendy way. Not, not just because it's cool to ask questions about things. You feel like he's in a, a fight for his soul here in a sense. And he's talking about these heavy, deep things. So the dangers of optimism. If we're learning lessons from death, I think what he's telling us is the danger of optimism is that it leads to this like foolish, partying stupidity. It leads us to this place of shallowness. So don't be optimistic with life unnecessarily or only exclusively. But um, get yourself into this place of... Greater depth. There's one lesson down. They they get a little bit less creepy from here, but they're still um, tricky. Now he's going to give us some lessons from entropy, the fact that everything eventually falls apart. So verse seven, he says it like this: Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former things better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So here he's talking about, I think, um, how kind of everything breaks down in the end, okay? There's there's a place for wisdom, certainly. So he says that in verse seven, like, um, uh, well, I guess he's been, praising wisdom but here he's saying like oppression even gets the wise person to go down into madness you know like life just kind of breaks you down like a bribe corrupts even a wise person and so the the end is better than the beginning and and be patient don't be angry like he's calling us to all these kinds of things and I think the thing we have to watch for is like yes pursue the good things in life pursue wisdom but just recognize like none of us are ever that wise and even the wise people begin to break down there, there was this um, this podcast that I used to listen to a lot um, called The Liturgists, and I and probably some of you guys know what that is, and a lot of you probably don't. It doesn't matter, but it was this um, this Christian musician that like was beginning to like he had some tough church things that happened, and then he was beginning to kind of ask some questions, and he was in this sort of fundamentalist mode of like oh, if you ask questions about your faith, then um, that's heresy, you know? And so he was just kind of like wrestling with this and, and it, with this other guy that was in a similar boat and they would just wrestle with it. And it was so like healthy and life-giving to me for a while, like, like oh, good. These people are being honest about like questions that we all have and not being told just like stuff your feelings down, stuff your doubts down, pretend that you're fine, just grit it out and push through. Um, but what I saw happen with them, I, I think there was some wisdom in how they were approaching it. But then what I saw happen is, they began to try to escape the fundamentalism over here that was so angry and, and uh, judgmental. And they sort of like dove into a different kind of a fundamentalism over here where it's like, um, oh, if you're not asking the same questions than I am, then, then you're an idiot. And you're the one on the outside. And there's this like hardening. And, and I just I feel like you could start on a good journey. You can figure things out. You can be a very healthy human being. But we all have to watch because things fall apart. And even start on a healthy journey in a healthy way. And you find yourself doing the same things that were hurting you. And so he gives us some of these little proverbs, these statements. Um, talking about how like, you know, there's there's protection in verse 12. There's protection in and wisdom and, and protection in and money. It kind of shields you from some things in life. But in the end, like nothing's foolproof. And, and wisdom is not going to solve everything. Money doesn't solve everything. Um, and so he's walking us through like, There's limits to all these things. And so um, lean in and, and trust that God's playing the long game. I think that's kind of what he's saying when he's talked about like being like patience is better than pride. Like lean in for the big picture, for the long game that God's playing ultimately. I like in verse 10, I want to point this out, uh, the idea of asking the question, why were the former days better than these? And he says, look, that is not, it's not a wisdom that's leading you to ask that question. And I feel like this one stings a little bit because we all have that sense of like looking back and it's like, man, look at our society right now, like how broken and how, how fragile and how tense and how polarized, like it'd be better if we could get back to the old days. And he's saying, you know, Sure, I understand why people ask that question, but it's not a wise question to ask because look back and you think that everything was better back then, but really though, like, you're not going to find meaning in life by trying to relive or recreate the glory days, you know? I don't care how good high school was for you. If you go back to high school, you're still going to be that awkward, dorky human being that's just living in there and broken and hurting in the midst of it. Um, I think he's just saying, like, it's, it's it's kind of foolish to think that, like, everything's worse now. Like, think how long history has been. And sure, there's some things about 50 years ago that were better. And there's some things about 50 years ago that were worse, right? Uh, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, um, there's things about life that are better now and worse now. And he's just saying like, you're not going to find the meaning to life to try to get back to where you were. Um, Maybe that's spiritually where I was at this other point. Um, Maybe it's, you know, us as a nation. Maybe it's my life in in some other sense. But he's just saying, stop trying to relive all this thing. Thing is, God's working now as much as he's ever been working. So look around and you'll find, okay, yes, things are hard about the life that we live, but God's still working now. And if we're not seeing the evidence of that, that's because we're not paying enough attention to what God's doing. Uh, The other thing is humanity has always been around. And so go back as far as you want. Human beings, were still living on this earth and we're still destroying and hurting each other. And um, that's its own problem in its own ways. And so there's no such thing as the glory days. I want to uh, bring in C.S. Lewis at this point because he's always helpful. And um, if you don't know how to fill out a sermon, you add a C.S. Lewis quote and it makes it way better. And um, he talks about this. He says, when we look back at like the glory days, when we look back at how things were better, he's saying, what are we actually longing for when we do that? He's talking specifically about um, that time when you read a book that just was so powerful to you or you heard a song or a piece of music that was just so meaningful to you. And he's saying, we want to get back into that. But what are we longing for? He says it like this. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them, for it was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found." The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a far country we have not yet visited. see, see, I love this because it points to like the richness of our human experiences, and it says like there's good things that God did in our lives, right? The good things that we've experienced, but he's saying what takes us back there to say like, I want to be back there again, it's not the thing. If you could grab that thing now and experience it fully, it would still satisfy. That's been the whole point of Ecclesiastes. It's not going to satisfy you like you need it to. And so even if you can get back, he's saying what draws you back there is this longing. He's saying the longing is not attached to those things. It came to us through those things, but it's not attached to those things, and and I think what he's saying is this is like the Ecclesiastes 3 piece where we saw this, where he says, God has put eternity into our hearts but so that we can't figure the whole thing out. There's this longing in our human heart, this hole in it that is just searching for this beautiful, good home. And we've had tastes of it our whole life long. And and, and we tend to attach like, oh, that was this church that was just the most meaningful place in the world. And if we could just get back to this church, everything would be beautiful. And and no, you experienced the life of God through that church, but the church itself was not the thing, right? Or or that relationship that you had, or that job that you had, or this this, recognition of this season of peace, like, those things are never the thing. So, if we learn lessons from entropy, like I think the preacher's trying to get us to, the danger of optimism is that we forget how unreliable everyone and everything is, okay? Now, again, this is hard for me. I love everyone, and I love everything, okay? Because I love Mr. Rogers, and that's how he rolled and, uh, and so it's tough to say, but he, he's right, right? Look at the world around you and just recognize, like, hey, things are actually pretty broken. And even if you could go back in time, things would still be pretty broken. Now he's going to give us some lessons from religion, from like religious life, from theology. There's some nuggets in here, but it still is problematic, and we're going to see how. Um, verse 13 Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He goes on, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. All right, again, some interesting words. I'm going to take you back to verse 13 here. Consider the works of God. Who can make crooked But God has made straight? He's acknowledging that, like, like these Proverbs, are, I think, are beginning to kind of unravel themselves. Like, there's a little bit of contradiction or at least tension in them. And, and he's just saying, like, um, Consider what God's doing in this world, right? There's this whole big thing that God's doing, and stop, stop trying to fix what God's doing. This is Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time to laugh, and there's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance, and there's a time not to dance. And he just goes through this whole thing. He's saying, look, God's doing something, and stop thinking that you can understand it or fix it, okay? And, and that, that's a tough thing. He, he uses the example of this. If you had a really good day, like a, a day of prosperity, like be joyful, that's awesome. God gave that gift to you. Enjoy the good day that you just had, right? If you have a really bad day, though, stop and consider, rather than pointing your finger at God, just ask yourself the question, am I going to receive this day from God and not this day? You know? And, and the hard thing for us is like, I don't know. Why Like, why does God give me one good day and one bad day? Like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I wish that God gave us only good days, but he's just saying, that's God's job. It's not your job to stress about it. So step back from that and just recognize that things uh, get a little broken at times and, and things get bent, things get crooked, but somehow God is behind that. I think in these verses uh, that we read 15 16 17 18 um, he's talking about he found a couple of um, counter examples to like the goodness of God in a sense okay so I think in this section the preachers being sort of like an atheist blogger I don't know if you've ever gone down this path at all but if you're an atheist blogger all you have to do is just find a couple of like counter examples things that kind of just show that maybe life's not as good as we think and then that disproves all of Christianity and everyone's faith is like meaningless and he's looking at it like this he's just saying uh, look here's the problem i look around it there's some really righteous people and um and then that person perishes that person dies right or there's these really wicked people and they live a long time so like what in the world god like everything's broken must not be real i think he's just kind of seeing like observationally man everything's just kind of broken a couple of counter examples and it leads him to just say pretty crazy words right yeah, be righteous, but don't be too righteous. Be wise, but don't be too wise. Don't overdo it. You know, don't, don't strain yourself trying to be good. Um, and, and But also, like, don't be super bad because, like, that, that kind of has its own ugly ending as well. So kind of just, like, take a handful of this from God and a handful of that from God and just, like, live somewhere in the middle. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb and just say that's not, like, generally the Bible's advice on how to live. Um, be god, be godly be righteous like pursue the lord with all your heart consider everything else compared to him is rubbish like there's lots of great um scriptures about following god with your whole heart but here i think he's just kind of stepping in he's just stepping into the mess of life and just saying you know what though if you try to be as righteous as you can be you put yourself all in to be the best person you could possibly be it's still gonna let you down you're still not gonna it's not a recipe for like then everything in your life will be fixed and amazing Um, Often, if if I'm counseling uh, married couples, I'll do like some light pastoral counseling to kind of help get a sense of it. And there's people that are like they've done something to kind of mess up their marriage. Husband or wife, it, it varies, obviously. And um, and there's then this impulse to say, okay, I, I know that I messed it up, but if I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself to where I need to be as a husband and as a person so that my wife or my husband will come back and want to be part of this. And obviously, that's great, right? We just applaud that. Like, good, put in the work, right? You've got work to do. You can be better as a husband. You can be better as a wife. Let's do this. But I always try to warn them to say, look, it's Be careful with your motivation because being a better husband, a better wife, that is a good thing. That's what God wants for you. But if you're doing it so that you can get your spouse back, what happens when your spouse doesn't come back? What happens when they don't respond the way that you want? If you find yourself getting angry and saying, what was the point of all this then? You recognize actually what you were engaged in was more like manipulation, right? It was more like a formula or something. And and so I try to tell people, be the person God's calling you to be. Be the the person God's empowering and inviting you to be. And if you're that person, then regardless of whether your spouse comes back or not, you're still the kind of person God wants to be. Um, It's a hard thing. We get into this mode of being righteous so that we can be rewarded. We can be, we can get what we want. We can get what we think we need. Um, But I think he's calling us away from that. And I, I think bottom line, if we look at these, some of these religious kind of theologically adjacent lessons that he's teaching us, I think the danger of optimism here is that we think we can do what's needed, right? We, we, if we do, if we just be right and do right and work hard, we can fix it. And I think he's saying, nah, you can't. One more set of lessons before we move into some happier territory, okay? I, I just, so this is hard for me. I'm the optimist. I'm in control of this sermon, and, I, and we're going to end somewhere happier, okay? So we're going to let him say his piece, and then we're going to go from there. So Ecclesiastes 7, verses uh, 19 to 24 here. He says it like this. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than to ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So here he is, and it's kind of like reaching this like unraveling point, And he's just saying like, wisdom is great, but like... Um, it kind of falls apart. And why? Why does it fall apart? Because verse 20, says, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Interestingly, there's exactly one verse in Ecclesiastes that gets quoted in the New Testament, and it's that. It's, it's Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there's not a single person who does right, does good and, um, and uh, well, I'm sorry, you guys can read it for me. There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And that gets quoted by Paul in Romans 3, where he's making this case to say, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so he looks back and conveniently he's like, I'm going to resonate with the preacher for a minute because I just want you all to know that like humanity is broken, irreparably broken. Of course, he gives a great solution, which is that Jesus came to us who are broken, who fall short, and Jesus offered his life to give us life. And in that way, God gets to be the just person because he punishes sin, but also he gets to be the justifier of the wicked. Those of us that fall short, God gives us his grace. So that's Paul's argument in Romans 3, and I love how he pulls this out. But he's saying, look, like, God, like things are broken in this world and people are broken. This is the problem. And he says, like, in our optimism, we think, like, you know, verse 21, like, maybe I can, like, solve things, or maybe it would be better if I just kind of knew what was going on more, right? So, like, let me find out what people are saying about me, you know? Like, I'm a likable person. Let me see what people are saying. He's like, don't do it. It's a trap. You think it's going to be great to know what people think of you? You think you're going to be able to gain control or or fix things if you just knew what people are saying? He's like, don't do it, because people are going to say terrible things about you. And let's be honest, you do that to other people all the time yourself, Very much a like, we're all flawed and broken thing here. And so being self-righteous, being um, good, trying to solve it all, know it all, learn it all. He's like, human beings are just so, so broken. And so he ends in this very depressing place. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me, right? He can't figure it out. He can't be wise enough to sort this all out. Life for all of us just gets bent sometimes life gets bent often. And he's, he's sort of setting it back to God and just saying, like, what, what God has made crooked, we can't make straight. Um, you're not going to be able to figure this whole thing out. So the final danger of optimism, if we're looking at humanity, the danger is we're never going to be able to sort this thing out. Like, we, we can't do it on our own. And so our optimism to just solve it and fix it and do it is not going to be rewarded. and It's going to lead us to this dark place. So now, here comes the optimist. You guys ready for this? I've got a heavy dose of this. Mark, Mark Gowdy, one of our elders, said that um, he said he described me as, he said, Mark's the kind of guy that like if there's two drops in the glass, he says it's half full. And I think that's about right. So, um, but I am not al- alone in that, okay? So I want to stand here on the authority of scripture and make a case for optimism, all right? And uh, I'm going to take you to Romans 8 to do that. One of the most powerful passages, I think, in the whole Bible. Romans 8, Verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So before I read more, I want you to note, like, he's acknowledging the sufferings. Like, he's he's holding hands with the preacher at this point and being like, yes, life is full of suffering. Things are hard. But what is he saying about it? But these sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be re- revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. There's that longing again, right? Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, or we might say vanity, right? As the preacher is saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Creation itself was subjected to this same vanity, this futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies." There's this beautiful picture here of creation is hurting and it's groaning. I love how he like includes the the whole world in it. It's not just us. And we are hurting and we are frustrated and life is like falling apart. Just as the preacher said, he's like, also everything. Think of like earthquakes. Think of wildfires. Like the world is in pain as well. And it's all just groaning together for this thing that God's going to do. But what he does is he reframes it. And he says, it's not just pain for pain's sake. It's not just suffering that's blind. He says, these are like labor pains right, so think of I, i've 've heard how terrible labor pains are, okay, and that that sounds like way more painful than anything I've ever experienced, okay, and so there's this pain and so it's not, it's not coming along saying, "Hey, just be happy, hey, this doesn't hurt, come on, you know, be brave here like don't if you if you haven't been there, don't say that as a husband to your wife when this is happening um, it's saying. This hurts so bad, but it gets reframed because it's the labor pains that is birthing this new thing. And, and for Paul, this new thing that's being birthed is God's new creation. It's this new thing that he's doing in the world. It's, it's us like being redeemed. It's us like finding ourselves saved and, and reconciled to God. And it's this beautiful picture of the world as it was always meant to be. So we can live like a, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes and look around and be like, I, this is not hard the world is broken, right? It is not hard to be an atheist blogger, to just be like, this is wrong, this is wrong, the church is terrible, people are terrible, and and, and the preacher is just like, you are right. All of that is correct. But Paul says, yeah, yeah, true, 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 but all these things are labor pains because God is doing something big and redemptive. And if we walk in this world, if we learn to like do what the preacher is doing, we begin to see the world in a new way and we begin to like, Set aside your optimism, the world's, the world's broken, but, but recognize this. I, I think he's basically saying, yes, there's danger in optimism, but ultimately the promise of optimism is that the world will be restored, right? We're right to think that everything's going to end up good in the end. There's this hope that comes. The preacher will get there by the end of, of his uh, long sermon that he's going through. When we get to the end of the book, which, which by the way, right before Thanksgiving is when we close the chapter on that. But we're, we're marching there, and, and I think we're being, like, invited to see the world in a different way. Let go of our, like, blind optimism. Let, get, let go of our silliness, our goofiness. Um, and, and instead, think seriously and deeply, but recognize that, man, God is working in every bit of it and always has been. I want, I want to share this quote briefly um, in, in closing here from Marilyn Robinson. She wrote um, this, this amazing novel called Gilead. Um, And and her main character in this book is this old preacher, this old country preacher from back in the day that is writing a letter to his young son. He's, He's getting ready to die. He's writing this letter to his young son, and he's giving him life advice. And he says it like this. It has seemed to me sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor gray ember of creation, and it turns into radiance for a moment or a year or the span of a life. And then it sinks back into itself again. And to look at it, no one would know it had anything to do with fire or light. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. See, I love that reminder because it's just reminding us this world looks so broken. You look at it and you're like, this this shriveled husk of a thing, right? And on and, and us as people, like we're so broken, we're so bent, we're so shriveled up, and it's like, how could there ever be life in this? But he's but he's saying here, like I've often found that when I look around at the world around me, all God has to do is breathe on a thing, and you just see this radiance, this glory, this transfiguration of a thing that's just full of life, even though no one would ever s- suspect it of being that. And I think our physical world is like that, right? We get we get dragged down with all this stuff, but then you see a sunset, and you're kind of stopped in your tracks, and you're like, "Wow, God, there's so much beauty just like all through this, right?" You could be having a hard day, and you can look at the leaves in a tree blowing, and the light shining on it, and you can say, "Okay, wow, God, you're here." And I would say similarly. I mean, our relationships, we hurt each other so much. In the church, outside of the church, we hurt each other so much. We're so broken and twisted and, and hypocritical, and all those things are absolutely true of us. And yet, because God is working and God is breathing all around us, there's these sparks of life that just come. Like, like embers that we didn't even know still had anything left It just come alive. And, and so there's relationships that we we're ready to give up on that, that maybe God's going to just breathe some life into there's, like, church life that maybe we thought, like, ah, I don't know. I think, I think this thing has run its course, but God comes and breathes again. and There's life to be found in it, in your family, in our world, in our workplaces, in our careers, all these things. I think there's these opportunities. So now um, I can hear Mark Gowdy just saying, like, only Mark could end a sermon on Ecclesiastes with this much optimism. All I'm saying is the preacher is right, okay? He is right. The world is terrible. Um, but I think the way he's leading us is, is things like this. We should not be afraid to ask questions. He's not afraid to ask questions. And so he asks questions. And in the church, sometimes we discourage questions. Let's ask him. Um, he's not afraid to call it like he sees it. And I think we should be not afraid to call it like we see it, right? When we see brokenness or, or, or apathy or, or lack of depth, like let's call it like we see it. But at the same time, I think we need to be ready, like the preacher, to be surprised at what we find. When we look at the world and we see the brokenness, be willing to be surprised by what we see. To, to, to recognize that like, maybe this course that we're on, uh, maybe it leads somewhere different than we thought. Maybe we start with this place of pessimism and we find that, man, God will do life in a place that seemed like it would be impossible. And I think all of this, like the the bentness, the brokenness of the world, maybe all of it is just a way of God reminding us that satisfaction is ultimately found in Him. That this stuff is great, but it only ever points towards Him, and we find our satisfaction in Him. So that's where I'm going to end it. I'm going to invite you to, to to feel a little optimism in the middle of this. We're going to keep going in these deconstructed proverbs, and it gets, um, yeah, just it just stays weird. It just is weird, stays weird, and then he wraps it up nicely at the end. So we're going to be fine. Um, But as we process that, we're going to sing a couple more songs um, and invite the band back up. And uh, let me just pray for us as we um, just process all this. Lord, thank you so much um, for these words. I have so loved wrestling with these words, these old, old words from someone that I don't know and honestly don't always understand. And yet, Lord, it's been such a amazing journey for me to process you in a different light, to, to come at you and your world and your truth and your people from a totally different angle. And, and Lord, I just thank you for meeting me in that. Thank you that we can see these reminders that, that man, that there's pains, but they're birth pains. And Lord, you are doing a beautiful thing. And so I pray for us in this room right now, Lord, even as we acknowledge the brokenness and the hurt that's around us, Lord, would we see you speaking life, breathing life into our relationships into our um, wounded hearts, into our tired bodies, into our strained relationships. Lord, would you breathe life into those things? Lord, we see you just like through the power of your cross. Lord, the fact that you laid down your life for us and that the same power that raised you from the dead is at work in us to raise us as well. Lord, would we believe that? And would we see that in the midst of a world that's broken and hurting, would we not look back at how things were? Would we look ahead to what you're doing? Give us eyes to to recognize and to see uh, that you are good and that you are active and that we are your children and that you love us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.